If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. This week, I have an incredible guest. Meet Brian Halligan, co-founder and CEO of HubSpot, the leading software for inbound marketing and sales. HubSpot launched back in 2006, went public in 2014, and now has around 70,000 customers. Prior to HubSpot, Brian was a partner at Longworth Ventures and a VP of sales at Groove Network. He's co-authored two books, is a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan, and has been named a top-rated CEO by Glassdoor four times. Let's welcome Brian. Hey, Brian. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. First of all, so nice to get to spend some time with you. You are just like one of those professional CEOs for everybody out there listening. You've accomplished so much. I want to kind of start from the beginning. Tell us a few things. First, what is HubSpot exactly, just for people who maybe don't fully understand what the company does? And then I want to dive into your own history. Sure. So HubSpot's a software platform that helps people grow their business and take advantage of the internet to grow. So It includes a content management system for your website and your chat and your search engine optimization, all that good stuff. It has a marketing automation system, email, all that good stuff. It's got a CRM, Salesforce automation system, and it's got a servicing ticketing system. So it's a full front office platform to help companies really grow online. Okay, so let's rewind. You launched uh, HubSpot in 2006. I actually dropped out of business school in 2008. So Pretty much, you and I started companies at the beginning of the bottom worst recession in 81 years. Mm-hmm. Walk us back through the beginning of HubSpot. You know, what did you set out to build? How has it evolved? And just give us kind of the gritty story. Sure. We started it similar to you. We started it while we were in business school. My co-founder, uh, a guy named terrific guy named Darmesh, and there were kind of two ahas that led to HubSpot. One was mine, and one was Darmesh's. I was doing a little side gig at a venture fund here in Boston while I was in business school, and I meet with the marketers and the CEOs and the founders, and I ask them how are they going to grow their business. And they all kind of had the same playbook. They were going to buy a list, and they were going to cold call. They were going to buy a list, and they were going to email people. They were going to do the big trade show. They were going to hire a PR firm. It was a very traditional playbook. Everyone kind of had the same playbook. My aha was that that playbook just didn't work anymore, that humans were sick and tired of being marketed to in that way. And they had spam protection software. They had ad blocker software. They had caller ID on their phones. They had DVRs. Like, it's impossible to reach people using that playbook. So I was kind of negative. While that was happening, Darmesh, a friend of mine from Sloan, he was blogging his way through BD school. So anytime he had an interesting class or anytime there was a guest lecture, he'd write a blog article about it. And he had a little blog called onstartups.com. And I was watching on a tool called Alexa, 
I remember that. You know, yeah, it's I, still out there. I, I of course remember that tool pretty well. <laughs> and I was comparing on Alexa the mojo that the, these wealthy, you know, well-funded, experienced, you know, venture-backed companies I was working with versus Darmesh, and he had like a million times more interest on the internet than any of these well-funded companies with professional marketers. And he was just really clever at writing good content, really clever at optimizing it for Google really clever in spreading it in early social media sites. And this is before Twitter and whatnot, so it was a lot of dig in Reddit where the social media sites people were using back then. And so we kind of came up with this thing that the old way of market is called outbound and it's interruption-based, but there's a new way called inbound. You gotta match the way you market with the way humans were changing the way they lived. And they lived in Google, they lived in social, they lived in blogs. And so the original idea for HubSpot wasn't HubSpot, it was just inbound versus outbound. We got super excited about this new way to market, but man, it was hard to do. You had to put in a content management system and hire a search engine optimization consultant, hack together a bunch of social media tools, and you had to put in Google Analytics, and you had to put in a marketing automation system, an email system, and CRM, and all these plugins, and it was a mess. So he said, let's build something for startups, for small businesses, so they could behave like huge businesses and market in a new way. So that that was sort of the first rendition of HubSpot back, back, back in the day. So then walk us through it. Like literally brick by brick, how did you stand the company up? You know, I think a, a lot's changed in terms of, you know, building startups is, is in some ways easier, but in so many ways it's not still. So let's go back to 2006. So much of starting companies has gotten to be so much, uh, you know, it, it, it's gotten easier in terms of the technology and the tools and fundings out there, but actually like disrupting your own life and jumping in the arena is still pretty hard, right? The opportunity costs, et cetera. Walk us through how you made emotional space to really go and decide you want to lean into this company. Oh, okay. Uh, I never thought I would start a company. I always, I like startups, but I never thought I would start a company. But a couple things happened. One, we did have a very good idea. We thought it was a good idea. Not everyone agreed with our idea, but enough people did and were really excited about it that we thought we had a good idea. And I met a really ideal co-founder. We went to school together and he was, he was a very good human being, and he also was the smartest kid in the class. And we also were both interested in how do we help startups. We were both kind of startups folks. So a lot of stuff came together, and it, but it wasn't a no-brainer. We started it in school. We took it through the business plan competition, but I still wasn't sure I wanted to do it. And I was looking at joining someone else's startup, and, and we just were playing with the idea, and we, we were starting to build the software and test it out. And... I don't know, I was like, this could be something big, let's just go for it. And I started a little later in life, I was probably 37 when we started HubSpot, so I had a little cushion and I don't know, it didn't feel that risky in the grand scheme of things, and I figure if I failed, I can go to join somebody else's startup, there's always gonna be a good startup out there. <laughs> um, okay, so I wanna move forward. When did you have your first aha moment at HubSpot where you're like, wow, holy smokes, this is working, this is real. When was that, what did that look like? Still waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brian, I love you. <laughs> I would say, so I read all kinds of startup books and what, and founders books and blogs and podcasts. And a lot of people talk about that aha moment. Honestly, HubSpot's been a case of two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. There was never one event or decision or funding round or anything that really changed the game. The product just kept getting better our go-to-market kept getting better, and it's still true today. Like, it was just kind of constantly improving, and we make mistakes and go backward for a while, 
but we try to learn from them and move forward. We never did have that sort of aha that really hit us. Well, first, I really appreciate you saying that because I think there's this incredibly glossy image to entrepreneurship where it's like, and then an aha moment happened in the sky's part and something comes down. And in reality, I mean, I unfortunately have many wrinkles on my forehead to prove this. It is just truly, you know, the everyday love of the game, um, which is what I think the best entrepreneurs really thrive on. But tell us a little bit more about two steps forward, one step back. Like, contextualize that. Give us a little bit of the detail of when was it a very clear two steps forward, one step back, what happened? I don't remember the two steps forward as well as I remember the one steps back. <laughs> yeah, so tell me about a one step back. I want to hear, I, I mean, I think it's so it's it's so much more okay. inspiring to hear about the shit that goes wrong. Um, yes. So uh, tell me more about that. Shit does go wrong. Even now, we've got 3,000 people. We've made some mistakes this year, and uh, we've hopefully we learn from them and we don't repeat them. I think companies, for better or worse, are reflections of their founders and their, particularly their CEOs. And my background was I came up really through sales and marketing in my career, and I was passionate about that. And I really invested a ton in sales and marketing. So I spent a lot of my time closing our early customers. We had a list, I remember, it was in a spreadsheet at the time of all of our first 50 customers, and then next to it, was the source of the customers. And I think 48 of them had BH next to them. So I just like hit my network really hard to get my early customers. And I was good at that. And I didn't invest enough in servicing those customers and setting them up for success and delighting them with a great product. And frankly, I relatively under-invested in, you know, in the delight side, I like the rush of the hunt and closing the customers. And the early step back was just realizing like we had a couple hundred customers They were all churning. I mean, they just weren't satisfied. We dazzled them with a great sales process, but we didn't answer the mail. The product wasn't good enough. So one of the steps back was just looking at that very high churn rate in 2008, for example, and really shifting the money in our P&L away from sales and marketing and big time in becoming not a sales-driven company, but a product and customer company. And the way I kind of describe the transition is we used to be very focused on that prospect and now we're very focused on the customer. We used to be very focused on the sales process. Now we're very focused on the delight process. And I think, thank God, we went through that transition because I don't think we would have made it. But there's a lot of that kind of stuff, a lot of one steps back, uh, still still one stepping back uh, these days. But I feel like, first of all, if, if this is you one stepping back, I, I put me in, Coach. Um, one of the things I really like that you did, and I think it is a little bit of the grittiness to how you tackled your problems you know, directly head on, I read you offered $30,000 referral bonus for tech talent, which clearly came at a time when you uh, had probably taken a step back and like really needed to fix it. Tell us a little bit about that. That's a pretty big referral bonus, and I think it really contextualizes the, the strategy that you knew you're probably your best talent is going to find the best talent. But talk through that experience. Okay. This is very related to what I was just talking about. Like in our heart of hearts in the early days, we were kind of a sales and marketing company. We were very good at selling, very good at marketing. And it wasn't genetically a product company. And we had an awakening like, hey, if we want to be a legit company, we're based in Boston. We need to behave more like these tech companies in the West Coast. And they are product driven. Their founders are product people. We need to get there. And we had to shift money in the PL. We need to shift our culture. We need to get really focused on recruiting and scaling fantastic engineers. And so we did that. It's a little bit of a marketing stunt to open people's eyes like, oh, you should take a look at HubSpot. It's a good place to be an engineer. And it kind of worked. 
And we did it for a short period of time, uh, and then we scaled it back. I would say at this point inside of HubSpot, we're really a product-driven, customer-driven company. And so when we're looking at recruiting right now, we're ahead on engineering recruiting. So like for a long time back in the day, we had a hard time recruiting engineers. Our brand wasn't good with engineers, uh, but we have a, we, I think we have Boston's best engineering team and we don't have any problem at all recruiting developers. But for a short period of time, we bumped that way up to $30,000 to send a message to the market that we really wanted to recruit here. We were a great place to work. And it did spread the word for a little while. It was a bit of a marketing gimmick, but it kind of worked. Well, clearly you're a, a pretty brilliant marketer, no pun intended. Um, but I think, so it, it, let's talk a little bit about that. You didn't come from the engineering side. You realized that sales and marketing was clearly a core uh, strength, um, which is great because that's what the company does. And then from there, you realize we really need to make this a strong engineering culture. And that's a little bit of out of your wheelhouse. Um, how did you just, I, I always call it L-I-T-T-P, lean into the pain. And I think entrepreneurs that just get really good at leaning into things that they innately don't have the skill sets to, don't feel great at, and are just like, I've got to go drink out of that fire hose and get really good at it. I think that's a really great example of being like, we have to become an engineering shop, and now you're absolutely the best engineering shop in Boston. So tell us about just your own comfort with discomfort. That's a great uh, question, Alexa. I went, I've been through a transition there. So initially, I said, okay, I'm, I can't write code or I write code poorly. I need to hire great engineers, but I can be the product manager and I'll be the most active user of the product. I will do support on the product. I will be the best product user in the company. And I became our head of product. And I remember at the time I read everything I could read about product management. And this is pre like, all the Eric Reese stuff and all that. So you, the, you, if you want to read about product management, you read about one person. You read about Steve Jobs. So I read everything about Steve Jobs. I watched all the documentaries and the movies. Like I soaked it up. And I thought, I can do this. This is a doable thing. I can get good at design. I can get good at product. And it took me several years to realize that good product people have a certain genetic makeup and good design people have a certain genetic makeup that I just didn't have. <laughs> and so I was pushing a rock up the hill. I was frustrating our engineers and product managers. And it took me a while to sort of say, actually, that's not my genetic code. And I don't think I can, I can get there. Maybe I'm good at seeing the future and, and having a vision about the way people are shopping and buying and how that's going to change and help create a, a paint a picture. But I'm not the right person to design your menu or really design a feature at all I'm not very good at. And so over time, it took me a while to realize that. And we do aggressive 360 review, reviews inside of HubSpot. And it started becoming clear, like, I'm pushing too hard here and I'm just not that good at it. And then I just got focused on finding people I could trust in product management. And I hired a terrific head of product, a guy named Christopher O'Donnell, who runs product for us now. And I really trust him. And I work on the stuff I'm good at. And he works on the stuff he's good at. So yeah, I leaned into the pain. I leaned into it a little too far. But but I think to your point, you got really good at understanding what at least the job was, and then you were able to realize, okay, this isn't just like core. I once had somebody say to me, "Figure out what you love to do, figure out what you're naturally really good at, and do both as early as you can in your life, and you'll be tremendously successful." And I feel like you at least figured out enough to know how to hire somebody that you could trust, which is probably the key. And with that, we'll be right back after this. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. 
Cardin knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. So I, I want to just quickly shift to uh, you IPO'd in 2014. And as, as an entrepreneur who sold my business, I just can only imagine what it's like to IPO your business. Not only just the like incredible work that goes into prepping, getting there, the day that it happens probably is almost anticlimactic because so much happens to get there. And then you know it's finally coming, but then it does. And then you have six months to actually make it all work really well. Walk us through what that was like, just being you as a human. I'll tell you a, a, a story about it. Uh... And he's like laughing right now and smiling. And he's just, <laughs> I'm so excited to know because I've never done it. I can truly only imagine the emotions that go into that yep. that month, that week, that year. Yep. It all came crashing forward in one moment. And I remember the moment, You tr but first of all, when you do the IPO Roadshow, it's the only time in your life you're treated like a total VIP. You fly around and like, private planes and limos and stay in nice hotels. It's ridiculous. Like, it's just this insane thing. So that morning, we wake up in the Four Seasons Hotel, and we're picked up in a limo, and Darmesh and I are dropped off at the Four Seasons and just kind of numb to it. And just hadn't thought a lot about the moment itself. It's just so much hard work getting ready for it, and the road show is really hard. And so we get dropped off around the corner from the New York Stock Exchange because, you know, security there, you can't just drive up to us. We're dropped off around the corner. We get out of the car. We round the corner. We look up at the New York Stock Exchange, and they wrap the building in your logo, which I didn't know they did that. I just couldn't stop crying. It just kind of, like, oh my flew God. forward. I didn't look at Darmesh because I didn't want him to see me crying at the time. I have a feeling he might have even shed a tear or two on that one, too. But that was the moment it just kind of hit me like, wow, this is actually happening. It was really that was a really cool moment. Um, I think you have had an aha moment. I think it may have been that <laughs> one. Oh, my God. That is so rad. That is such a cool yes. story. Yep. And I was fighting back the tears that entire day. But I am Irish and my bladder is very close to my eyes. So that does happen to me from time to time. <laughs> I will tell you the one thing I think we so we're in Boston and in Boston there's been a lot of companies that have gone public and just kind of gone sideways and we're trying to build a San Francisco company inside of Boston. We talked to a lot of founders who have gone public here. We talked to them in the West Coast and the thing we kept beating into our head and the company's head is the IPO is the starting line, not the finish line. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs thought about it as the finish line and we just beat that into the company and beat it and beat it and beat it. And uh, we have treated it like the starting line. And it's like a whole other life we've had. And by the way, a lot of people think uh, being a public company CEO is no good. It's, it's, uh, it's too much scrutiny. It's too short-term focused. I think it's been great. When you're private, you've got a bunch of venture capitalists on your board. They're very smart. They're somewhat misaligned from you. And they're usually pretty quirky. When you go public, you trade that one group of somewhat quirky and somewhat misaligned investors for a different set of somewhat quirky, somewhat misaligned, but more buttoned up investors. And I found that the public investors are very rational and reasonable. And if you paint them a picture of what you're going to do over a longer period of time, they will buy your stock and they'll hold on to it. They'll check in with you once a month on how you're doing. 
but we haven't felt that urgency to solve for this quarter. I feel like we've been able to run the business, and most big companies, I think, do this well, invest over the long haul, paint a picture for those investors who want to own the stock for a long haul. And it's been great. I've enjoyed the public side just as much, if not more, frankly, more than I like the private side. So what's really clear, and I want to transition now to you, you went from being almost like an accidental entrepreneur. You've never been like, I'm going to go build a company. You were like, I just see this really big opportunity. Let's go tackle it. Now you went from zero employees to 3,000. You've leaned into the pain many times. Give us a sense of like, how have you stayed stable through it all? Just knowing that what you have done and still are doing is incredibly superhuman. What's your playbook? What are your tricks? What are the things you swear by in any capacity that keep you stable and grounded? I don't think it's superhuman. A lot of people have done what I've done. Um, I would say I've changed a lot. Like, I would say one of the things about me and a lot of entrepreneurs is one of our best characteristics as a startup founder is we like control, we like to make decisions, we like to move fast, and we're kind of control freaks at heart. And that that greatest strength as a startup founder turns into your greatest weakness as a scale-up CEO. And so trying to, like, break free of that controlling nature and that that desire to make every decision and the desire to be right all the time that is a tricky transition for me uh, to move from the you know, founder type ceo to a ceo type ceo that has been a tricky transition still in process but that's the thing i think that stands out the most to me to have evolved over time that has not been easy and i suspect if you talk to other entrepreneurs that have taken it through the ipo uh, i suspect that's the case for a lot of them <laughs> Where did the insights come from? So like when you had to get better, you said you guys did, you know, really thorough 360 reviews. How did you think about understanding your own limitations, your own growth, knowing that the whole time, and again, you still are, you've been on the treadmill, right? You've, you've been on the like, run fast to keep making the the business go. And I suspect even from this conversation that you're, you're still running. Um, Oh, yeah. How do you slow down to actually get those moments where you can step back and say, okay, I shouldn't be the head of product anymore, or now we need to become a technology company, uh, and we've, or we've got to look more like Silicon Valley. I hope over time that you'll start thinking you also want to look more like New York because we think New York is looking more and more like Silicon Valley every day. Um, but just where do you get those insights? How do you step back? Or, and again, do you have any kind of rules or processes around that for yourself? Okay, let's talk about the – so I get an annual review that's a little unusual. Uh, and, it, and we've done it when we were a small company, and we do it, even do it today. And the, and the board sort of sponsors it, let's say. And my co-founder runs the review process. And it's an unusual 360-degree review that he does. Uh, he sends a, sur- an, a net promoter survey out to about 25 people, frontline employees, um, direct reports, board members, and whatnot. And he's been doing it kind of the same way every year, which is very useful uh, that he does. And he asks on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to refer Brian as a CEO of HubSpot? And then why? And then there's a free form and you can say whatever you want. People write novels in there. And he's been doing it for a long time. So the board and, and myself can kind of track my internal net promoter score. And then he writes a report off of what he learned. He doesn't just cut and paste it in. And the report this year was 31 pages long. My review was 31 pages Whoa. long. <laughs> yes. And uh, the first half of it is 
you know, what you're doing well. Here's the things that people admire about you or think you're nailing in the job. And he talks about that as your list of features, basically. And some of the features he'll mark as, oh, this is a new feature we haven't seen before that you've developed. Congratulations. Or this is the same thing you've been doing for a long time. You continue to be able to do it. And you just think you're the, you've got it nailed. Like you read the first half and you're like, I, I'm, I'm, the best, I'm the best in the world at this. The second <laughs> half of the document is the bugs. And so it's like I grab a, like a good glass of scotch and <laughs> I read the second half. And by the end of it, you're like, how could I be so bad at my job? <laughs> I've gotten these reviews before. And so I'm like having my own PTSD yeah. from this. Yes. And so the bugs are interesting because he'll point out, oh, this is a bug that we've seen before. You ought to be <laughs> cognizant of this. He'll say, oh, uh, this is a brand new bug. Congratulations. And the interesting thing that shows up is this is a thing that was a feature before that now is a bug. So, for example, you probably tell from this call, I get really passionate and excited about things. <laughs> and sometimes when we're working with a team, I can get so passionate and excited that it almost flips the other way, that the passion almost turns into a weakness. So that's an example of one. And I take it super, super seriously, and I read it very carefully, and I write goals for myself. I publish it on, on the wiki sometimes so the employees can see it, and I work on it. And I don't fix all the bugs. In fact, I look at some of the bugs as like, hey, that's just part of me. Uh, it's just, uh, that's a bug, I can't fix it. Other bugs are like, oh, I can fix that. I should work on that. And so that process for me personally has been very helpful. I can talk about how the company evolves and the strategy evolves. That's a little different, but that 360 review is gold. I really love this. I want to know when you're through. When do you get this 360 review in the year? Is it January? Uh, January, February. Time I'm going to send you a bottle of. I'm going to send you scotch. That's going to be my thing. <laughs> I'm going to be like, here you go. Saddle up, Brian. <laughs> um, I have gotten my own version of those reports. Not. Uh, I once got a 200-page binder after selling my company when I joined the management team of Northwest Mutual. So I really. And I will tell you, I loved it. I One thing I think that young entrepreneurs, we, we we don't lean into the feedback. I actually think getting really clear feedback is so, you know, forget just being good at your job. It actually makes you a better mom. It makes you a better partner. It makes you a better child, wife, all of those things. Um, and so I'm always really grateful to get the, like, gnarly feedback. Yeah. Because no one else is going to tell you. It doesn't mean it doesn't suck, but it's, again, <laughs> lean into the pain, L-I-T-T-P. It's, it's part like of that. my life now, strategy. Let, let's talk about something else related to this. Yep. So the company itself also has gone through several transitions in ways of innovation. And one of the ways the company gets better and gets feedback is once a year, I take the whole management team to San Francisco and we do a field trip, just like when you were a kid in school, you go on a field trip to the zoo or wherever you would go. We go on a field trip and there's a theme every year. So, for example, uh, two years ago, the theme was uh, freemium business models, light touch business models. And so on that field trip, we visited Dropbox, Atlassian, um, DocuSign. Uh, Google, like the G Suite folks, we visited like seven or eight different companies and we were able to get pretty senior level meetings. And the meetings are just an hour where one of the one of the people from from HubSpot leads the discussion and just asks them tons of questions and we take notes and uh, we learn a ton about that. And then we come back to HubSpot, we digest it, and then that becomes part of our planning process for the, for the next year. Last year we did one, it was on platforms. So we visited a bunch of companies who are doing platform businesses in uh, Silicon Valley. That's a way that the company 
uh, can learn. And I can do it myself, but when I bring the whole team together, it, we all hear it at the same time, and it's much more powerful than reading the notes after. So that, that, that's that been a good hack that we've had. I love that. Okay, so I want to just quickly end on a few last questions. I want to know when you're interviewing somebody, because I can tell you, you have such a high bar for the caliber of people you want to bring in to HubSpot, and you are running HubSpot in a really unique way, um, which it's, it's obvious you're a, an exceptional leader in, in the transparency and everything. What's your favorite interview question? How do you feel like you get to the core of somebody? What, what is it that you ask somebody? Okay, let me give you two comments on that. Cool. One is I think I and almost everyone else overrates their skills at interviewing. It's just like everyone thinks you're a great driver. Everyone thinks you're a great interviewer. And if you just look empirically at what happens, a lot of people end up getting pushed out of a company or quit the company. If we were all really good interviewers, that wouldn't happen nearly as much as it does. So I lean a lot, frankly, on references. Like, can I find somebody that worked with them in the past and really get into it with them? Um, And board members are super useful for that kind of thing. So that would be my first comment. In terms of my interview questions, the question I ask in every interview is I draw like a spectrum of on one end is you like to follow best practices and optimize processes. On the other end is you don't really like conventional wisdom much and you want to create new processes or rethink processes from scratch. And I want to know where people's head is on that. Are they process optimizers or process, you know, want to create new processes? And at HubSpot, even though we're 13 years in, we don't feel like we really have it nailed. Like there's so much more we need to do and so many areas we need to improve. And we're very open to feedback in that way. So where I get worried is if people are really following a playbook that they came from XYZ company and they want to bring that exact playbook into HubSpot. HubSpot is kind of unique. Every company is kind of unique. And those plays don't always work. So I like people who are a little open-minded, a little creative, have a little bit of disdain for conventional wisdom or willing to rethink things. That's one question I I make sure I ask in every interview. I really like it. I want to know if you're going to pay forward to one entrepreneur, what's one thing you would teach them? So somebody out there that's listening and they're starting a company, what's one thing you would just say you think you want them to know? Get a great co-founder. We, <laughs> I have, I picked a great co-founder. Uh, he and I see the world in a very similar way. We're both in it for the very long term, and uh, he's he's deeply technical. I'm more on the sales and marketing side. We have some overlap in the middle. There's a one plus one equals three between us, um, and we just get along. Uh, we like each other. Oh, that's awesome. That makes me really happy. Um, and then last question is, is there one company that you're excited about that's not HubSpot? So one thing that has hit your radar of any kind, it can be a product, it can be literally like a durable good, it can be a platform, it can be a, anything. I'd tell you one entrepreneur that I met very recently that I liked is Toby, the CEO of Shopify. I just think that it's a great company. I really admire what they've done. Uh, I like that they're doing it up in Canada and they're very proud Canadians. Um, and they're doing it outside of Silicon Valley. I like that company. I like him a lot. I'm super impressed with those guys. I absolutely love that. Brian, thank you so much. We are so grateful for you joining us today. Everybody, if you're out there, if you want to learn more about HubSpot, check it out. Your company should be using HubSpot. And thank you so much for joining us on this week's The Founders Project with Alexa Montobel. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. You can subscribe to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Montobel wherever your podcasts are offered.